supposed to stir it or is it supposed to look like that? Uh, it's supposed to, that's how it's served because you can see the color uh, difference. Yeah. It's tropical. It's fancy. Yeah. Welcome to Prefer Not To, a weekly sometime cocktail hour. Always cocktail hour. With your hosts, Josh and Kate. As always, I'm not Kate. I'm not Josh. Every week, Kate and I have a new cocktail, new to us at least. Make it, render a verdict on it, talk about its history. Then we go on to talking about some movies and elements of the culture and then give you a couple of recommendations. Send you on your way, all in hopefully less than an hour. How you doing, Kate? I'm good. How are you? I'm pretty good. What are we drinking this week? We're having zombies. Standard disclaimer, Kate and I will probably butcher your favorite drink. Please don't take it personally because we like you. Second standard disclaimer, alcoholism is a serious disease and you don't need to drink a drink to enjoy our show. So Kate, tell us about the zombie. The zombie is a tropical cocktail. The version that we're doing is going to be a little bit mediated from its original potent form. Our recipe that we're using is two parts white rum, one part gold rum, one dash of Angostura bitters, one part orange juice, and one part pineapple juice, as well as a dash of grenadine for color. This is a modified version, like I said, because the original cocktail calls for at least four different types of rum and apricot brandy. So in the interest of staying sober long enough to do the podcast, we have modified the uh, recipe. This has to be a drink from the 1950s because I can't imagine any other time in which people would have four different kinds of rum in their house. Yeah, well, it, that's the origin of the name, too, is that it's called a zombie because if you drink more than two of them, you'll be going, and stumbling around. And eating people. Yeah, also that. In the original restaurant where it was prepared, which we'll get to in a second, there was a true drink maximum, so you could only... Um, what? A two-drink maximum. Like a cutoff after two drinks mm-hmm. of this particular beverage. The drink also has so much rum in it that you could light it on fire, which would add to the novelty, particularly because it is a tropical drink and came out of the tiki craze in the 1940s and 50s. And this is tropical with really big scare quotes around it. Right? Yeah, 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 yeah. No, it's it's like any other drink that, you know, your, um, your pina coladas or your Mai Tais or mm-hmm. anything it's like from, that. Yeah, so it's... Tropical in the sense that uh, it has pineapple. Uh, Elvis juice. in Blue Hawaii was tropical. Yeah, he actually. I think he had one of these. Oh, did he? In, in Blue Hawaii. There you go. I'm not gonna lie. Either that or maybe it was a mai tai. Because I was debating between doing the one of those, mm. and I'm not sure where I read that. Were you feeling tropical? Um. Well, yeah. I mean, it all starts with a base liquor that isn't gin, which I can. <laughs> we all gravitate towards. So I've I've put myself on a no gin cocktail mm-hmm. list f- until. Probably summer. I don't know. Because mm-hmm. gin seems to me much more of a summer. I mean, all cocktails to me are very summery, mm-hmm. but I'm, I'm struggling and trying to do cocktails that don't have gin in them. Okay. I like gin. I mean, we like, I do too. I have nothing against gin, but, you know, in the interest of keeping things fresh and new. Um, and rum itself is a liquor that lends itself beverage. easily to tropical because it does come from the Caribbean. And it's sweet and it goes with fruit well because it's sweet. Yeah, and especially in the 40s and 50s, rum was very cheap in America, especially after World War II. So the zombie itself was invented by Don Beach, a former bootlegger in mm-hmm. the 20s, who established a chain of restaurants in uh, post-World War II America called first Don's Beachcomber Cafe, and then after a while it became Don the Beachcomber. That's the name of the restaurant. And that's not like a wrestling name. It's not Don the Beach. 
Comer. His no, name is Don Beach. It's Don. Well, his birth name is Ernest Raymond Beaumont Grant, and he was born in Texas. <laughs> How on earth did he get to Don Beach from that? Um, I'm not sure. I guess Beach B E A C H. No Beach, like, like we're going the to the beach. No, like B E A C H. Is that what you just said? Yes. Sorry, B E. Yeah, like we're going to the beach. Mm-hmm. He established a chain of restaurants called Don the Beachcomber. They were one of the first, if not the first, tiki-style establishments uh, in the late 40s and 50s in America. So you're thinking, anything you're thinking is probably pretty accurate. You know, palm fronts on the wall, masks. They served supposed exotic culture. Mm -hmm. His first restaurant was opened in Hollywood, so it had a certain um, celebrity um, clientele that kind of posted. And then he ended up opening a bunch of these restaurants across the United States, the last of which in a chain closed in the 1980s, the late 1980s. So it was like a a Tiki Hooters? I think it would just be like a Tiki Chili's. If that makes sense, so I don't no bike pants, right? I know, like it'd be like you know, out outback, out except mm-hmm. it's tiki instead of Australian. Right. Um, he also claimed to have invented the mai tai and was lifelong rivals with Victor Bergeron, who is the one who established Trader Vic's, known to us from the Warren Zevon song "Werewolves of London," <laughs> and also a similar tiki style chain across America. And they had a long-standing rivalry. Well, it was amicable. I mean, it was like, you know, Bur- well, I don't know, maybe Burger King and Wal- Burger King and Walmart. Burger King, I haven't even had anything to drink. It was just like Burger King and McDonald's. It's the same kind of, I guess. Mm-hmm. And tropical cocktails are interesting because they usually use rum. And rum is interesting to me because it's one of those liquors that you can stack on top of other types of the same. Like, you can use dark rum and gold rum and white rum in a beverage and it still tastes good as opposed to using scotch whiskey and American whiskey. You know, like, it's something that lends itself to mixing with it I, I just think that's interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's the zombie. It mm-hmm. was originally concocted by Don for a, this is apocryphal, may or may not be true, for a traveling salesman who was hungover and needed some hair of the dog. So instead of giving him a Bloody Mary, mm-hmm. <laughs> he gave him a zombie. And then the guy complained later that it turned him into a zombie. 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 Yeah. So. Um, had you had one before today? No, I haven't had one yet. Yet. I still haven't tried it. What does mm-hmm. it taste like? Uh, it's, it tastes like a lot of rum. And can you imagine having two more types of rum in well, there? I, I have had two more types of rum in there. I, we used to have them at a bar in my neighborhood in college. Oh. There was one of the last tiki bars left in America, Cyril's House of Tiki. I'm sure there's a tiki bar out there somewhere. On, uh, it was either 55th or 53rd. I think it was 53rd. And they would serve the zombies. They said it had six different kinds of rum in it, so they claimed. And it was served in these tall, they were like Tom Collins glasses, but they had sort of... Um, bar relief naked Polynesian women on them. Oh. Yeah. And it was a very kitschy, tacky bar. And it was great. And it had this, like I said, it had this wonderful big neon sign out. So that was where I have had my zombies ah. before. One more note about the recipe that we're using. It also, like all cocktails, varies between the restaurant and the person who's making them. Essentially just has to have rum and some kind of fruit juice in it, preferably a lot of rum of different types. Um, I know that Don Beachcomber, Mr. Beachcomber, mm-hmm. as we will now refer to him as, Mr. Beachcomber had was very secretive about his drinks than he, when he invented them because he invented a few tropical-based drinks. He... Uh, often referred to a secret ingredient, like kind of like special sauce, except mm-hmm. it would be like, you know, just a mixture he would concoct of sugar and, you know, some kind mm-hmm. of like taste, just or, you know, like a paste or something like that. Like no one's really sure what was in the original Mai Tai, so we're drinking kind of an approximation. But because of that, when other bartenders tried to replicate it or mimic it at their bars, you get different types of right. beverages, which is also why the Tom Collins, you know, we talked about that with the Tom Collins. And yeah. Mm-hmm. Are there other monster named drinks 
like a Godzilla or a, there's a Dracula. A, well, there's probably a cocktail for everything. I do know there's a shot we haven't tried. It's called Bloody Brains. And it's one of those things where you drop, I think it's Bailey's inside of something else. And so it curdles. And as it curdles, it looks like brain, like in the shot glass. Yeah, I want to make sure that we're not going to drinks that were invented by frat boys. <laughs> you know, like, the, I think there there are a lot of cocktails that, like, frat boys invented. And then they just sort of became, like, the sex on the beach and that stupid That's shit. not from, no. Um, I'm trying to think of other monster ones. It's just because you like zombies. Like the zombie phenomenon. You like Walking Dead. You like zombie movies. I liked it before it was cool, first of all. <laughs> Where are you on fast zombies versus slow zombies? What do you mean? Which one do you think is better, I guess? I'm, oh, I'm given like... to understand that in the horror nerd community, it's a topic of some enthusiasm. You mean like Dawn of the Dead mob zombies I'm... versus like super fast mutant 28 days later yes. zombies? I'm talking about Night of the Living Dead original zombies versus Dawn of the Dead remake zombies oh, yeah with like um or 28 days later zombies. or or in day of the dead and city of the dead intelligent zombies right um no i guess i would definitely say slow zombies mm-hmm. have we had any movies i think i asked you this earlier have we had any movies that pitted fast zombies against slow zombies because i think by the way i copyright that because <laughs> i think that's where that's like the last because we've we've really milked the zombie teat dry i think ew yeah, that really is gross isn't it <laughs> yeah there's well, no zombie baby, so that's just sad. Well, there is in Dawn of the Dead, uh-huh. the remake. Uh, but I think slows are zombies versus fast zombies. In order to make it competitive, I think you'd have to tell a story where the fast zombies were very few in number and basically just turned them into the human. Also, you have trouble finding someone to empathize with, I think, in a fast zombies versus slow zombies movie. I'm not going to say that that movie hasn't been made, but I, if it has, I don't know of it. Mm-hmm. I also think that'd be fairly unthrilling to watch. Because, but why would they turn against the slow zombies? Is this like a star-bellied sneeches con- kind of situation? It's competition for resources. Um, are the humans all gone? I think. I think in order for there to be a competition of resources, there can't be humans. Exactly. Uh, you know. So what? Happens? Oh, no, there, no, there can't. There have to be humans, but they have to be very few, so that there's like one last human town, and the slow zombie mob is slowly moving its way toward the last human town, and the fast zombies have to eat those humans, or they're gonna die. There's actually a really great article that I'll put in show notes by. Um, Simon Pegg, actor from... All those things, yes. From um, Shaun of the Dead and a lot of other funny Hot movies. Fuzz Hot Fuzz. Hot Fuzz. World's End. About um, why slow zombies are better mm-hmm. than fast zombies and nay, why slow zombies are so much better to the point that a fast zombie shouldn't even be a zombie anymore because it goes against the thematic this point. This is just things that nerds care about. I think anything can be done well and anything can be stupid, you know? Let me ask you this. So on fast zombies versus slow zombies. Yeah. But really, we live in a mythos with a slow zombie virus or whatever mm-hmm. you know virus has only been the vector of zombism for this most recent craze that wasn't you know originally it was necromancy and well such. there's a variety right but i mean causes. recently this recent yeah trend so this most recent zombism correct me if i'm wrong it's been largely viruses virus-based zombies well that's true but i mean traditionally speaking there's a lot of different it depends on each individual zombie story has its own origin right like vampires but the most recent one has been mostly viruses right or genetic mutations yeah that's true the most recent movie remake of i am legend it was a uh, vaccine that mutated people's genes Mm -hmm. that turned them into the vampire zombies in the last of us it's a fungus so there you go we gotta play that you you don't like to play the the survival horror games though you just like to watch people because i'm not good at them we should do that. But my point is, if we lived in a world uh, where slow zombism was the rule, and like somebody really fast, like Usain Bolt, 
got zombified. Okay. Would he be like all the other zombies? Would or would he be a really fast, slow zombie? Or would he be a new kind of zombie? I feel that if you were a walking corpse, you're not gonna be as fast or as felt as you were in life. So I'm gonna say he might be slightly faster than the rest of the horde, but not that much. For one thing, you're like getting distracted by the like the smell of brains and stuff. So it's not like you could sort of directed. It's not zombie sprinting. I think even with the fast zombies, that's mostly goal goal oriented behavior. True. True. So it would, I think it would probably be hard to to get like a consistent hundred meter. Stopwatch time. I, although I, zombies probably couldn't operate a stopwatch. I was going to say, who's the ref in that situation? Yeah. I guess if you're the world's second fastest man and you're not a zombie, here's our story. <laughs> world's two fastest men, fa- uh, second fastest man doesn't get zombified. Fastest man does. So there's an element of suspense about whether fast zombie Usain Bolt catches up with whoever the second fastest man in the world is. Should have I know. Oscar Pistorius, I would say, but he's got his own problems. He's making lots of zombies on his own. But... I think that's a good story. I think that would work. Mm. I'm surprised we haven't sung the Tiki Room song. You mean in the Tiki 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 Room? Yeah. Because that dates from the same period, that whole Disneyland Polynesia. Well, they've actually revamped the Tiki Tiki Room so that it stars other famous Disney bird characters, including Zazu from The Lion King Mm -hmm. and Iago from Aladdin. It's all about selling the merch, isn't it? Welcome to our tropical hideaway, you lucky people, you... So, hey, do you want to do our movies? Sure. Each week, Kate and I pick a year in our lives. This week, it's when we were 16, and we watch the number one movie from history in the week of the year that corresponds to the week that we're doing the show. So, this year, our movies were, for me, it was 1989's Lean on Me uh, with Morgan Freeman and Robert Guillaume. And what was yours? Mine was 2004's Passion of the Christ. All right. I believe it's The Passion of the Christ. It is. Because there's a lot of these in that title. (laughs) Two, to be precise. Mm -hmm. But there's always more than you think. (laughs) So I guess I'll go first, uh, since my movie is first. Uh, Morgan Freeman plays a teacher with a sort of chip on his shoulder because he got transferred out of his beloved Eastside High in Patterson, New Jersey in the 1980s. It's a school that has gone from success to failure. Crack dealers rule the roost. And the school is looking for... Anyone to come in and clean it up so that they can pass some state tests. The deterioration of the school is illustrated by a very fast fade in which the hall becomes full of crack dealers, a woman is sexually assaulted in a bathroom, and this nearly all-black high school starts listening to Guns N' Roses. It's really, it really is like Mad Max High School. And through a series of aggressive maneuvers, kicking out kids, patrolling the halls in his white suit, bullhorn, and he's not actually in the bullhorn. In his white suit with a bullhorn and a baseball bat, he turns the school around such that the state is not required to take it over. Now, historically, this is not terribly accurate, but be that as it may. Kate, what did you think of the movie? Well, what did you think? I thought his performance was really interesting. I thought it was a pretty, otherwise pretty paint-by-numbers TV movie portrayal of a guy who is kind of authoritarian, at least as portrayed in the movie. It's also sort of having been a reporter covering education for so long, I can sort of see where all of the the problems come in. I mean, the strategy that he used of just sort of shifting the bad kids out of a school so that you can increase test scores is pretty much par for the course now in a lot of districts. So it's hard to view that as a really good idea, although they portray it as him just kicking out the crack dealers. But, you know, man, the kid's 15. Doesn't matter if he's dealing crack. He still needs to be a, get an education. I don't know. So what did you think? I thought this was a very um, 
Josh said TV movie, and it struck me as it should have just been a TV movie. And the fact that it was released in theaters and was actually successful kind of blows my mind. Um, I didn't really care for it. I thought that Morgan Freeman's character was a fascist, and I don't throw that word around very lightly, but quite literally, he was so authoritarian that he kicks out a teacher for trying to do her job. Yeah, I mean, he had kids required to sing the school song on demand. Um, instead of addressing maybe, you know, real issues with these children who seem to have lost their way and not care about schoolwork because, you know, instead of teaching them algebra, (laughs) you can teach them the school fight song and that will totally turn the world around. I didn't, I thought it was maudlin. I thought it was over the top. It's not very realistic in any way. And this is, even with a, a dose of movie magic, this is not realistic in any kind of way. Within the first day, he kicks out half the population just cause. And I just, I didn't care for it. I didn't find his arc really, there was no arc. He didn't have one. Well, I think by the end, he was at least meant to have come to an understanding about living and living with some of his people, but I don't think it was him giving very much ground. No. And there was like probably five different covers of the song lean on me by bill withers so oh, there are at least three full length because i was counting them full yeah. length musical interludes of several minutes long and this was not a long movie to begin with so it was very tv movie-ish you know whose school's in trouble Susie troll yeah yeah the standardized scores were not good so they had a big episode about her and her scores not being good and her teacher sort of singling her out why and well papa troll was torn because on the one hand he wants to stand by his daughter and didn't feel like his kid should be singled out but on the other hand he has a lot of pride because he went to the same school so there's a lot of tension there and it turns out that her grades were so bad because she was being late for math class every day because she was afraid to dress out for gym so she was always late so Um. they came up with a solution where she would wear sweatpants all day every day and uh, then her math scores went up and the school passed the state tests. So it was a happy story. That's good. That's Solved good. in 22 minutes. Yeah, exactly. And they didn't need a baseball bat or a bullhorn. Yeah. Just need some tough love from Paw Patrol. Well, he just needed to understand what the real problem was. Yeah. Was this because she didn't think she had a beautiful body? I think she was. It was a little bit of body shame on Susie Troll's part. Well, Susie Troll's so beautiful, though. Well, she took a she took the dumping of from uh, the orc kid across the street when she got dumped. Whoa! She took it really hard. Whoa! Whoa! We don't know why. I missed the episode where Zach Orc dumped her. We don't know why. What it happened, happened off screen. We don't know why. Oh my god! Did well, I get... think they might be recasting the role. I think they want a different orc. Yeah. Yeah, they want someone who skews younger. But that's so. What they're just gonna have her get back? Well, they might go with, with a gnome. Troll. They might go with a gnome. Oh, so you think it's gonna be a whole new character? Or a hobbit? Yeah, they want a boyfriend that skews, if not younger, mm-hmm. shorter. So they might go with a pixie. Because if you're a troll, you're already kind of short. Or a gremlin. Unless he's an orc, so the, there's the height difference there already with the trolls. Well, I'm saying if you're gonna match them together, unless we're talking about Warcraft, in which case trolls are quite large. They are. They're very tall. Is that a video game? Yes. Okay, so what was your movie? My movie was 2004's The Passion of the Christ, starring Jim Caviezel, Monica Bellucci, Maya Morgenstern, excuse me. The film focuses on the hours leading up to Christ's crucifixion, specifically the last 12 hours of his life. Um, It starts with his night of doubt in the Garden of Gethsemane and ends with his resurrection three days after the crucifixion. Uh, The movie itself is rather infamous for its use of violence to depict the suffering of Jesus. It also read very anti-Semitic in its early screenings, so it took a lot of flack for that. It's also remarkable because it's one of those movies that Mel Gibson basically funded himself and then made all of his money back very quickly on. So, Several times and yeah. times over. It's an interesting movie. Most of the cast are no no one knows them or they're, I mean. Hey, Jim Caviezel's got a primetime network TV show now. 
Yeah. Um, it's also not set in English. In fact, the entirety of the dialogue is either Latin, Hebrew, or Aramaic translated mm-hmm. for people on screen. So it had a lot of interesting things going for it in terms of set design and ideas for a movie. But I don't really think that we needed another Jesus movie to be made, honestly. You know, anyone who goes to see it probably already believes it or is not going to be surprised by anything they see. And then if you go to see it just for shits and giggles, then, you know, that's where you're at. No one's going to go in and say, wow, I didn't know Jesus suffered like that. I love Jesus now. Having said that, apparently almost half the crew and cast on the shoot actually converted to Catholicism afterwards. I call bullshit on that. If my boss comes in one day and starts talking about, you know, I I discovered that this bag of frozen peas in my freezer is actually the son of God, and I'd be really happy if anyone started praying to these peas. You know, I got, I got nothing to lose by peep praying. Well, it's true. I mean, there is a certain, I think... You know, we were talking about The Bachelor last week. Um, when you get people in a closed situation and mm, give them certain expectations, right. it's much easier well, for them how to cults believe recruit. something. Yeah. I have a friend who was in a cult, and they they would take people out into the woods when they would recruit them and have these, you know, intense small group bonding things. To wit, on the set of pa- – before every day when they started filming, Mel Gibson had a priest, like, on set to lead them through mass before they started working for the day. So you can imagine that even if you're not Catholic or even if you're an atheist – in fact, the actor who played Judas is an atheist and is now transformed – or transformed, converted into Catholicism – can imagine how that would kind of be responsible for it. Yeah, that's a I loss. think the more interesting question is who's still Catholic from the shoot? I don't know. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, years right, later. Right. Did it take – I do admire the film for its strict devotion to the traditional narrative of Jesus's passions, even if it doesn't make the most sense plot-wise. Like, as a religious study major, I really like the idea that you're literally checking down the stations of the cross, and there's a lot of these um, hidden messages and figures. Having said that, though, the part of the passion where Christ collapses under the weight of the cross and St. Veronica comes to excuse me, she will be St. Veronica later, comes to wipe his brow with a random piece of cloth that she has to create what becomes the Shroud of Turin. That's interesting from a religious point of view, I think, or, you know, historical. However, it doesn't have anything to do with the narrative. Mm -hmm. She just comes out of nowhere and is like, hey, Jesus, let me wipe your face, you know? And then then after St. Veronica does that, uh, St. Betty brings him a milkshake and Reggie gets jealous. So that's kind of how I felt about that. I also want to give a shout out to the actress who was playing Satan because she was very easily the best part about this movie. Far and away. Basically, whenever Satan wasn't on screen, I was like, I need more Satan. Mm -hmm. Get thee in front of me, Satan. Mm Mm-hmm. And the rest of the movie, I think my take is actually pretty similar to yours, even though I'm you know, not a believer by any stretch of the imagination. But I didn't understand who the movie was for. I mean, I sort of did in the sense that so many religious people have bought and watched this movie a, a zillion times over that it's sort of become a form of sacred document on its own, which I think is very weird because I think it's it sort of gives the impression of attempting to be a complete and accurate documentary record while at the same time hewing to this religious text, which by its nature as a religious text is difficult to parse as a document of history. So that was weird. I mean, I admired his efforts. I loved that it was in Aramaic and that was bold and a lot of the costuming and the set design. And the, the exceptionally Catholic elements, the focus on the pain and suffering and passion of the Christ. His relationship with Mary. I found really, it, I mean, the, the movie didn't move me to question my beliefs at all. And I think if you look at it in that sense, if you look at it as a story, it's only like the third act 
of a story. I said this before. I think it's like if you had made Star Wars, but it was two hours of them racing down a trench in the Death Star. Like you have nothing of the philosophy of the world that they're in, which if the doc, if the movie is trying to convince people, if it's trying to proselytize, I mean, there are a few little sermons here and there, but if you blink or go to pee, you will have missed them. But we get a good hour of hooks pulling flesh out of Christ's back. We get more of him just the the trip from the city to the fucking hill takes forever, forever. Right. <laughs> like forever. Having said that, I do think that it is does work as a narrative, but that's just my opinion. Mm-hmm. Again, I admired the the technical mastery of it loved satan satan was fucking metal it was awesome i can't stress that enough that was really i thought and and also and that's the thing the things that were the most interesting about this movie were when he veered off and wasn't trying to i think make like a documentary record of what happened i also found the character of pilot to be the most interesting one of the more interesting like that and satan you're not supposed to sympathize with pontius pilot oh i think you are that's a that's actually a pretty catholic thing and that yeah. comes back to the to the to the anti-semitism charge because it's been a long tradition you know not surprisingly in catholicism to downplay the role of the romans mm. <laughs> And play up the role of the Jews. They even, did, I don't know if you noticed, but there's um, that one saint whose name, uh, Cassius, I think. Right. Something like that, who is one of the Roman soldiers at the mm-hmm. crucifixion who later converts, and they specifically had him in there. Did you notice that? Mm-hmm. That's the kind of stuff I'm talking about. It's like all these little side stories that are interesting, but ultimately, I, you know, once you've seen Jim Caviezel bloodied, it, it it's yeah. kind of... And it wasn't as... And I had not seen this before, but it wasn't as torture porn as I had heard it was. Maybe I'm just desensitized, but I don't think so. It just, again, it just didn't, there were bits and snippets of a movie that I wanted to see in this. Um, But I think it was so bogged down by the rest of it of hewing strictly to this checklist that it just left me kind of cold, except when Satan was on screen. It was awesome. The first time I saw it, I found it genuinely moving. But how much of that was being in the dark, in a group experience... And how much of that was because of actual craft of filmmaking? I mean, I still thought parts of it were really moving here, but that's just that's just me. I mean, yeah. I did see it on Ash Wednesday in 2004. <laughs> I'm serious. Um, and then I later watched it at home with my father, who is a minister. But at the time, I found it very moving and just in the dramatic. It's not a church pageant. It is actually very gritty, which is something that's easier to hold on to. Yeah. I don't know. Okay. So next week, the number that we picked was 12, which for me is going to be 1985. And for Kate is going to be the year 2000. Mm-hmm. My movie is going to be Peter Weir's Witness, starring Harrison Ford and Kelly McGillis. Ooh. And yours is going to be Brian, Brian De, Palma's De Palma's Mission Sorry, to I almost Mars. said John Carpenter's Mission to Mars. I was like, no, that's No, not but it. I thought that too because I got it confused with whatever it is. Yeah. Uh, yeah. There's a, yeah. Vin Diesel. Yeah. Um, so this is Mission to Mars by Brian De Palma starring Gary Sinise and... Uh, Don Cheadle's in it. And, Tim uh, Robbins is in it. Tim Robbins. Yep. That's... Yeah. All right. So let's have a break and we'll come back and talk about what the heck is on the cover of Us magazine. <laughs> okay, we're back. So every week, or more recently every week, Josh and I have decided to start doing a feature called Explain Us to Me, in which we take a picture of this week's Us Weekly magazine in the supermarket, and then I explain the cover stories to Josh. And why do we do that? Uh, Josh hasn't felt culturally alive in the past. 
I'm dead inside. Well, Kate. that's how you describe it. Sometimes. I like how every time I ask you to describe it, you describe the process by which we do it. It's like first we get in the car, then we drive to. The, it's like my mother. Then we drive to the store. Aww. We go to the magazine rack. One of the other of us picks the magazine up out of the rack. How would you describe it? Each week, Kate and I take a look at the cover of Us Weekly, a magazine that has previously baffled Josh with its choice of cover photos in ah. that he doesn't often understand who's on the cover in a feature we like to call explain Flowers us to Algernon. me exactly <laughs> anna karenina <laughs> okay sorry so that's explain us to josh not to me because i know what's T. going on anyway so josh what's your first question here okay so first thing we have is these uh two people who are saying why they confess to something or other mm-hmm. explain so it's uh teresa and joe Giducci from the bravo tv show real housewives of new jersey she is the housewife that's her husband recently indicted and accused of various kinds of fraud both tax fraud and bank fraud and lying on contracts and stuff mm-hmm. a whole lot of cd business practices through for the past and couple they've, of years. they've confessed in some way. at this point they have confessed they were originally accused back in the end uh in july of 2013 and, and they then, denied it then they've denied it then. so what is their let me ask you this what is their fortune built on well that's interesting because i couldn't tell you i think it's obviously i think it's real estate in her case but with every real housewife the assumption is just that they're super rich for no reason and if you actually look at their finances like their husbands and what they do most of the time it's almost like they are keeping up with the joneses yeah it's just hand to mouth on a really on a much higher level exactly like none of them are really super rich except for the the one exception i could always think of was uh kelsey Grammer's wife right because she was married she had kelsey Grammer money but it's it is it's just hand to mouth she's got that phrase so these are people who don't actually do anything, who are in fact probably criminals, confessed admitted criminals, who are they, famous for their criminal enterprise that we didn't know was criminal and or for her appearance on a television show because of her wealth, which is directly attributable to this now admittedly criminal enterprise, correct? She's, she's famous because of Bravo's Real Housewives. Right. Her appearance on a television right. show, her appearance on which is directly attributable to this criminal enterprise. Perhaps. I mean, you don't really know where one started and where the others, mm-hmm. you could argue, I'm I just guess. I'm that... uh, That's enough for me. I don't want okay. to talk about it. All them. right. You know, we got other people on the cover who are, like, legitimate people. I will right. say that Teresa is the one who originated the prostitution hoa meme, hoa. which is a wonderful clip. I don't even right. watch Real Housewives of New Jersey, and it's still my favorite Housewives moment of all time. Okay. There you go. So we've got what? We've got the Oscars. We've got a lot of folks on there. We've got Jared Leto. We've got mm-hmm. Jennifer Lawrence. We've got Lupita, whose name I can't say. Lupita Nyong'o. Okay. And who's the fourth person on there? I can't. I don't have the I think there's up. only the three. Is it just the three of them? Yeah, because, you know, I didn't bother to. F- oh, no. And Brad and Angie. Excuse me. Oh, okay. Brad right. and Angie. So we watched the Oscars this year. Mm-hmm. What'd you think? I thought Ellen was a, I mean, Ellen... I thought Ellen was a great host. I do think that being the Oscar host is kind of a thankless job. Yeah, and so can't. all you can do is just be bland. And thing. I say that I love Ellen. I do love a lot of the bits that she did. But at the same time, if you you can't, there's no winning, really. So here's my thing. They did the in memoriam bit, right? <laughs> uh, which was pretty long. And they did it with Bette Midler uh, singing Wind Beneath My Wings, right? From Beaches. And also from before. You were going to say something? She came out afterward. It's, it wasn't set to Wind Beneath oh, My okay. Wings. Okay. So she came out afterward in tribute to the fallen, (laughs) to our slain heroes, to our slain mighty fallen. She sang uh, Wind Beneath My Wings. And she also did that on uh, when Johnny Carson went off the air on his last episode. So I'm wondering, like, what the threshold is 
for Bette Midler to come and sing? Like, how important or significant does it have to be for Bette Midler to come and sing When Beneath My Wings? Like, is she going to do that every year? Or was there some specific critical mass? Of, I mean, seriously, is it going to be like um, like uh, uh, Burt Parks singing the Miss America theme? Which you're too young to remember, and yeah. I'm only barely old enough to remember. But is, is she going to do it every year after the, the thing? Because this was the first year that she did this, right? I think so. It just seemed like a random thing just sort of shoved in there, didn't well, you think? That was kind of like, yes, it was very random. No, I don't think she'll do it every year because the Oscars insist on doing these random... Well, then, so next year, it's like, what if my, my husband, my wife... Mm-hmm. who is, you know, a veteran production designer, mm-hmm. dies mm-hmm. and is in the in memoriam thing. And Bette Midler, I get the news, Bette Midler's not going to sing with my wings. <laughs> and I'm like, but, you know, my husband was the biggest Bette Midler fan in the world. Like, wouldn't you be insulted? Like, wouldn't you be hurt? I... At this point, I think she can't win. She's locked in now to every year singing When Beneath My Wings, or she's hurt somebody's feelings. I think that she's probably receptive to the idea of you just paying her to sing at your husband's funeral. Well, no, no, I meant sing When Beneath My Wings for next year's thing, when he's in the in memoriam, because he's a veteran production designer. Yeah, but I would say if she can't do the Oscars, she can probably do your funeral. Yeah, it's, she probably does private I mean, events. also, they, the Oscars does this. They just drag out random songs and random acts for people. That's why Pink showed up to sing Somewhere Over the Rainbow this year. I don't even remember that. Really? Because you oh, were I ranting do. I, very I loudly like, yeah, about it. Bad. Uh, so here's the other thing. So you know, because she did it in Beaches, right? Mm-hmm. So you know that when Barbara Hershey dies, mm-hmm. if Bette Midler is still alive, she'll sing Boom Beneath My Wings at Barbara Hershey's funeral. Mm-hmm. I think that's pretty much a given, right? <laughs> okay. So Sam Barbara, and I don't know for a fact whether or not Barbara Hershey's mother is still alive. Okay. Sam Barbara Hershey and my mother dies. And I'm like, hey, Bette, you know, my mom died and I'm really sad. Mm-hmm. I think it would be really great and really a tribute to her if you came and you sang Wind Beneath My Wings at my mom's funeral. Would you do that bet? Am I bet in this scenario? I don't know. I'm just saying. Would I? Like, where does... My point is, she's open to slippery slope. Because then Barbara Hershey starts saying, you know, my, my, my best friend from college died. I think at a certain point, Bette Midler is on a plane 365 days a year flying to sing at the funerals <laughs> of Barbara Hershey's fallen friends and relatives I and think- well-wishers. Okay, that's one possibility. I think it's much more likely that she's gotten used to singing Wind Beneath My Wings over the years. I mean, hell, she did on an episode of The Simpsons in the 90s. Yeah, so. but that was that was a takeoff on her appearance on The Carson Show. Exactly, but she still agreed to do it. Okay, so who else do we have on here? We have Ashton Kutcher and Mila Kunis looking not at all like Mila Kunis. He, uh, he put a ring on it. He proposed to her. That's the whole point mm-hmm. of the story. Okay, good. That is... Probably what I thought you meant. Ew. <laughs> okay, so how long have they been dating? They've been dating for two years now. Uh, they hooked up shortly after his divorce to Demi Moore was right. finally finalized. I love that. You know, I felt like people made fun of that relationship, but I felt like that was one of those, like, hey, you know, 40-something, 50-something oh. woman nabbing herself a little jailbait type thing. It was a little hoist on their own petard kind of Hollywood thing that I felt like people didn't, you know, didn't give her enough gold medal for, you know, scoring some young meat. I think they did. It just didn't work out ultimately because, you know, he cheated on her in a bathtub on their anniversary. 
were they both in a bathtub and like he she no, caught him she, cheating? She like, was like across town. Didn't even bother and to leave the he, bathtub. He, he cheated on her in a, like a hot tub yeah. with some sexy model. Hot tub is not a bathtub. There's nothing clean that happens in a hot tub. Well, there's no cleansing whatsoever in a hot tub. Well, especially not if you're having sex with Ashton Kutcher. Am I right? I think it was like implied by what I said. Um, the point of this article the being rim, that the rim shot too. They've been dating for a while now he finally proposed apparently they've been really good friends since that 70s show and now they finally let their emotions oh, God, take each it. other over whatever blah, 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 who blah, cares blah. okay so then we got kim kardashian who apparently has some kind of money trouble you didn't even want to look at it because you know fuck it it's kim kardashian well i couldn't find it on the us weekly website and i'm not about to buy the fucking magazine so i can only assume that it might be related to the fact that her sister was recently robbed of fifty thousand dollars or there's some kind of fake there's some kind of fake story going on about how she's ashamed or, you know, in some way embarrassed by the way that Kanye lavishes her with gifts and wants okay, a big so wedding. So that might be true. Because I'm thinking, like, think. three weeks ago, didn't we talk about how she got a $10 million ring for pushing a baby out of her vagina? That was not, that was, like, probably. Or to, in, excuse me, a couple to of, encourage her to push the baby. Yes, was that like, was. It's like, you know what it's like? It's like when you pay, when you buy a hitman, <laughs> you pay the first $5,000 up front. And then $5,000 when it's done. It was, it's the same thing with the push ring. It was a couple of months ago. However, how, however old their baby is now, this was... But here's my question. Like, to me... Okay, so the push pre- the push prize. And I know we've talked about this before. So when do you... First of all, when in the process do you get the push prize, push gift? Do you know? No. Because I'm thinking, like... I mean, if you get it before the baby's out, there's no... You know, there's nothing to it. And then there's... If you get it... After, if you get it after, then it doesn't really help encourage you to get it out. And furthermore, like, what kind of leverage do you have, really? Say, oh, if you don't, if if you don't give me a ring, this baby's staying in. I was just thinking the opposite. Like, what do you do? Like, as the husband or the father in this situation, do you take your Hermes bag that you have for her and you hold it across like the hospital? You wait at the opposite corner of the hospital room and go, "If you want this, you gotta come and get it," you know. And so she has to give birth and then get up and come right. get. It. Like, it doesn't make any like like no, the woman has no incentive already besides being in horrible pain to get the baby out of her. And she doctor, needs that diamond I ring. Doctor, I don't. She's two weeks overdue. <laughs> We've tried everything. We've used every bit of medical. Science. Science. We have you tried a diamond encrusted sapphire brooch? But doctor, it's completely unorthodox. Sometimes we've got to do what's unorthodox. Like seriously, w- yeah. w- how did? The- <sighs> okay, I've never heard of it. I, I have, had not. I think that's just amazing. I talked. To, no, it's not because I talked to somebody. I was like, "What the hell is a push present?" And my old roommate was like, "You've never heard of that before?" And I was like, "No, no because I it's haven't. not a thing." Yeah. Right. Okay, so let's go take a break, and then when we come back, we'll do some housekeeping, do our recommendations. We're back. We're going to do a little housekeeping before we give recommendations. Excited about the housekeeping? Oh, my God. Tense. Uh, first, I wanted to thank everybody who talked about us on Twitter in the past week, including superfans Dania and Amper, as always, Eben, and my friend Josh. Keep talking. Keep tweeting about us. It's really nice. We really appreciate it. If you want to reach us, we're at PNTCast on Twitter. You can search for Prefer Not To on Facebook. 
Our Tumblr is pntcast.tumblr.com, and the website is pntcast.wordpress.com. We're also on both iTunes and Stitcher, and we love reviews there. And if you can prove that you've written a review there, send us a letter. We'll send you a gift box. And I promise that those stickers and gift packages are on the way. I know I've done that before, but for all you folks, there's two or three of you. They are on their way out the door. We'd really love a letter to the editor. Seriously, we've had a few weeks and we haven't had one. So even if like you're our neighbor and we're too loud, instead of coming over and knocking, just at BNTCast, send us a little note. Oh, and I wanted to mention, if anyone out there, I know we have a couple of listeners who are musicians or who have bands. If anyone would like to record a version of our theme song, which is 1919's Baby Won't You Please Come Home. <laughs> it's in the public domain. If you wanted to record it and give us permission to use it, we will thank you in each and every show and give you nice publicity to the presumably dozens of listeners we hope to have at some point in our exactly. history. So there's that. So this week, as in many another week, we don't have any letters to the editor to read. In which case, in lieu of an actual letter, I read an actual letter from a reader of another publication to another editor. And in this week, our letter is to the Cape Gazette in Lewes, Delaware. And the headline is, National Anthem Should Be Sung Respectfully. I was somewhat heartened that this year's Super Bowl National Anthem was sung by renowned operatic soprano Renee Fleming, backed by the Combined Armed Forces Choir. It was a welcome pause from past year's Super Bowls because, for the most part, they have featured screeching, gyrating, barely intelligible, inappropriately attired, no-talent so-called superstars desecrating the star-spangled banner. But the Super Bowl committee is not the only one guilty of giving these no-talents a national stage. It is epidemic across all sporting events these days. The national anthem shouldn't and doesn't need to be stylized by every vocalist, each seemingly attempting to outdo their predecessors. All they really succeed in doing is mangling it to accommodate their sleazy and inappropriate interpretation. What is most galling about most superstar performances is that it becomes all about them and not our national anthem. Some of the best past presentations have come from little-known, everyday Americans. The New York City policeman who came forward after 9-11 particularly comes to mind. So from now on, I would implore those responsible for pregame activities, make it mandatory that the vocalists sing our national anthem right or not at all. And that's from Steve Heil in Lewes, Delaware. All right? That's right up your alley, isn't it? A little bit. I mean, I like a little bit of musical interpretation, although I think, like, here's my thing about the sort of stadium embellishment that you get on the national anthem. It's hard for me to gauge whether or not you're a good singer if like you're just singing notes all over the map, you know? Cause like, you know, you can't hit the notes, you can't hit the notes, but well, whatever, if people are entertained, they're entertained. God love you, you know? You have a really hard national anthem to sing. I think anybody who gets up in front of a crowd and sings it deserves some respect. Hmm. And it's about the effort and uh, the song. So there you go. You wanna do recommendations? Sure. What are you recommending? This week I'm recommending 1979's Dracula starring Frank Langella, Laurence Olivier, and Donald Pleasance. It is a retelling of the traditional Dracula story that we all know and love, uh, set a few years into the 19th, I'm sorry, the 20th century. So it's a little bit updated, uh, focusing on a sexier, younger Dracula than we had previously seen in other reiterations of the tale. And it is beautiful. It's very spooky. It's 
something that I didn't think I would enjoy when we first watched it, and I really liked it. It's now streaming on HBO Go. Time-wise, it's not updated that much. I mean, they move it from the 1880s or whatever to... To the 1910s. Right. So it's moving from Victorian to Edwardian, but it still has a very sort of late Victorian Edwardian Gothic feel to it. I agree. This is, it's a really it's John Badham directed it. It's a, it's a has of, a good feel. A lot of mist, a lot of sea. To me, it feels you know the the original. 1940s uh, one uh, is atmospheric and has that great Bela Lugosi performance but in terms of feeling like the feeling that I had when I read the book this one came the closest at least to me the closest that it came to me was uh, Dracula 2000 was actually the closest to the novel that I've ever I'm not saying saying closest in terms of plot because they do take several liberties with the plot especially toward the end yeah the part where Dracula turns out to be Judas no. Crazy. No, you're just being... But in terms of the feel and the sensibility, it felt the most like I felt when I was reading the book. So I agree. I, this is a good one. All right, Josh? Good recommendation, Kate. You don't tell me what to recommend. I don't tell you what to recommend. <laughs> tell me a goddamn thing. Yeah, good job. So my recommendation this week is a documentary called Marwin Call. It's from 2010. It's the story of a guy named Mark Hogan Camp. He got beaten almost to death by a bunch of guys outside a bar in a bar fight, but it's not really a sad story about a guy who got beaten almost to death. It's the story of how, through the creation and photographing of an extraordinarily detailed miniature diorama of a place that he calls Marwin Call, which is an anagram of the names of several people who are in the fictitious town, he rebuilds some of his memories and some of the function of how his brain worked before the attack. He's a very strange and unusual fellow, and the movie is a very thoughtful piece about that intersection of art and therapy and history and memory and how they all interplay. So those are our recommendations. 1979's Dracula, 2010's Marwin Call. What do you think of the zombie, Kate? I liked it. I feel like there's there's so many different recipes. I'm you know I'm never gonna feel like we got it right. I feel like that with every cocktail, mm-hmm. but you know it's really good. It's very tasty. It's yeah. extremely drinkable. Yeah, if you like grapefruit juice and rum, you're all there. Pineapple, but oh pineapple. But I'm sure you could throw some grape juice yeah, in there too. I'm sure somebody. Be the makes same it. damn drink. Yeah. So, thank you very much. As always, we really appreciate your listening. Hope to spend some more time with you guys next week. As always, for Kate, I'm Josh. And for Josh, I'm Kate. Uh, We hope you enjoyed your time with us and that you'll listen again. Thank you for listening. Oh my God. I'll be like Donald Pleasance and just talk like this for the whole podcast so you can't edit it out. See how many more episodes.